0: Well, good morning, everybody. So two weeks from today is Easter, and so uh, just as it's uh, gotten a little bit brighter over the past couple of weeks, we're looking forward to uh, celebrating, uh, beginning uh, a week from today with Palm Sunday and then uh, continuing through, as, as Bill mentioned. Uh, we do have also in, in the back um, kind of some information that summarizes that that you can take with you. This is also um, an easy way to invite somebody to come and join us. And so not only sharing things online through social media, but uh, still have some paper things as well. And so you are welcome to take one of these uh, or a handful of these with you uh, this morning. And uh, let me just reiterate some of those things where it is um, important to register the Good Friday breakfast, the egg hunt, uh, Easter Sunday morning, Uh, even that is all done not just with, you know, safety in mind in in the midst of the times that we're in, but also to make to make sure that we can make room for people who want to be here, who need to be here. And so uh, your registration, while it may um, be a little bit of an inconvenience or seem redundant, you know, they know me, they know I'm here, it kind of helps us make sure that we are creating enough space um, for that, um, you know, and for Easter Sunday morning, for uh, people on Good Friday. So that's why uh, that is important. And so as we continue uh, in and through uh, these seven weeks uh, of Lent, Uh, We've been looking at the cross, we've been looking at the cross as the way. Uh, John chapter 14, uh, verse 6 reminds us that, you know, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, the life. He is not a way, he is not a possible way, Uh, he is the way. And so as Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, what does that look like? What are the dimensions of that? And we've mentioned kind of uh, in week number one, you know, the idea of a kaleidoscope, that there are these, uh, it's the same pieces of metal, it's the same light source, but the way it hits it kind of nuances certain things, and brings things into focus. And uh, so as we've jumped into these different theological words or or concepts, and, you know, we've kind of put up the list every week, and we've taken one or two or or three of them, uh, the goal here is not to uh, focus on bigger words or to try to say somehow that we've missed it in the past, but is to almost uh, sharpen our understanding and our clarity uh, about what the cross uh, and Jesus' death upon the cross accomplished uh, for us and continues to to unleash and remake and, and to accomplish inside of our lives ongoing. And so I was thinking this week, I was uh, at, at the uh, ophthalmologist, it was, uh, you know, one of the appointments that seemed to fill my calendar this week, and, and I'm there, and um, let me just say that, that going to the eye doctor is different when you're wearing a mask, and many of you, you know, you've had that experience, and so, uh, you know, you lean up against that little thing, and then all of a sudden it begins to fog up. And uh, I'm like, this guy's going to think I'm blind, you know, because I'm sitting here and I can't see any of the letters because, you know, it's all blurry. Uh, but they always do that little thing where it's better one or better two. And half the time I can't tell the difference, so I just pick one. You know, and, and so better one, better two, sure, let's go two. Uh, occasionally I'll say, I'll say three just to mess him up and see, you know, where we're going. But, uh, but then you know that there is that moment of, of clarity where you look and the, the A and the P and the T are a little bit fuzzy. And then he says, better one or better two, and all of a sudden it is sharper, it's crisper. You can actually see the details. Sometimes you can even tell that it really wasn't a T after all, it was actually, you know, some other letter. And and I thought about that in regard to the, the privilege and the opportunity that we get every year at Lent. Uh, we see, we know, we fill our language throughout the year with talking about the cross. We know what the cross is and what the cross does, and, you know, we've we've read, you know, the verses, we've... Memorize them we 've thought about this for years, some of us, but sometimes during light we have the opportunity almost to to sharpen the picture, if you will, and so that the, the p doesn 't look quite as fuzzy but looks crisp and and the nuances and you can see the detail that 's the opportunity we, we get and so I want to invite you not just to take part in the activities of Holy Week or to be here on Sunday morning, uh, but as you read through the Gospels as sometimes uh, you know, what's exciting to do is even just to, um, you know, if you don't have a hymnal at home, you, you're you welcome to take one of ours as long as you, you know, bring it back. Um, or you could just Google, you know, uh, hymns about the cross. There is some wonderful theology of the cross inside of the great hymns of the church. And so in our reading of, of Scripture, inside of our, our conversations, inside of our worship times, uh, reading through the words of hymns, there is so much inside of this year that, or, you know, this time of year that Jesus can kind of reshape, reform, almost bring into greater focus and clarity the nuances of what took place at the, at the cross, not just 2,000 years ago, but ongoing inside of our lives. And so that's what we've thought about. You know, we've thought about the relational imagery, uh, the familial imagery, that, that God has always wanted us to belong to him and to be his people We've thought about the aspect of sacrifice that runs like a major thread throughout the Old Testament, but then the New Testament writers pick up on that, uh, you know, as being as Jesus, as the fulfillment of what every sacrifice and offering was unable to do, uh, he did himself. Last week, we talked about kind of the the great exchange that takes place and whether that's through legal imagery that we were guilty and now we are innocent or whether it's in, you know, the wrath of God that there was something that stood between uh, us and him that, that's been satisfied, it's been wiped away. The redemption that we've been bought with a price, that there is this great exchange, all of him for all of me, uh, that, that transforms the reality inside of my life. And so today I want to spend our time and just tap into to one other you know, set of images. And it's not so much about the, the words, or, uh, but it's more about, again, one of the major threads that runs through the Old Testament that then even the New Testament writers uh, pick up on. Just like the temple, just like the sacrificial system that that not only uh, paves the way for who the people of God are and how they relate to God inside of the Old Testament, uh, but it finds its fulfillment in Jesus and adds depth and dimension to what the cross did, just as that's the case with the sacrificial system and with the temple. I want to focus today on what is uh, possibly the major event inside of the Old Testament that gets revisited and, and becomes the language for the people of God about who he is and what he's doing inside of their lives. And it's the, it's, uh, the exodus. It's the exodus and in particular the Passover uh, meal in celebration of that uh, of that evening when, uh, you know, God came in and liberated and rescued and released his people to become uh, a people, to inherit a land, to uh, have a name that they belong to him, that he would lead them out of bondage and into life. And let me just say this is a, a major event, and, and inside of all of these images, right there, there are many familiar passages that we've quoted and we've read over the past uh, four weeks or so, and today it's not going to be any different. In fact, uh, back last fall, in the middle of our "God moments" series, uh, when we talked about you know, moments of amazing rescue, we talked about the Passover as being you know the, the prime example of that. And so uh, just Six months ago, we spent time inside of the passage we're going to spend today, but I think it's that significant that, again, in the cross, it kind of pulls together um, what all of Scripture had been pointing to in Jesus. God's love, God's power, God's deliverance, God's initiative in calling a people out of bondage and into life and inheritance and promise. And so if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Exodus chapter 12, uh, probably a very familiar uh, story and picture for you. Exodus chapter 12, and we're going to read the first 13 verses, even though really this is just kind of the introduction to and the command about what is going to be taking place. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is, is to be for you the first month. Notice there's even a rewriting of their calendar and a reorienting of even how they tell time based on what's about to happen. This month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Anybody getting hungry this morning? Do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste, it is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt." So again, this is kind of the command, this is the introduction of about what's about to happen, and and there's further instructions that are given, and then in verse uh, 31 is the actual events themselves that take place just as it's described in the first uh, 13 verses. And inside of that moment, there is the event that takes place that there is a meal that's celebrated, there is blood that's put on the doorposts of of the house. Uh, Then there is, you know, the moment where God comes through and he he strikes down uh, the firstborn, at that time, then the, the people of God are released and they kind of gather up things. They are already ready to go. They've went and they've asked their Egyptian neighbors for articles of gold and silver. And by the grace of God, they've said yes. And so they have all this plunder of Egypt and they head out and they walk through the Red Sea and, and, and through the wilderness for 40 years and then eventually into the promised land. And so that's, that's the story that really is uh, the culmination of really a, of God's call to Abraham inside of you know Genesis chapter 12, that I'm going to make you a nation, I'm going to increase you know your descendants to be like the, the sand on the shore, uh, you, you are going to be my people, you are going to be a special people, and what was not realized inside of Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or Jacob's sons, 430 years of bondage inside of Egypt, now God steps in and does what only God can do. You'll know that this is the 10th plague, and the other nine that had taken place had not softened Pharaoh to the point of saying, okay, you can go. But on this 10th plague, and this, by the way, was the only one that did not affect the Israelites. Up until now, every other plague they experienced just the same as the Egyptians, but this one was spared uh, of them and was only on the Egyptians and signaled a beginning for the people of God. Do you know it begins so back in the early part of Exodus that when Moses uh, sees God and experiences Him inside of the burning bush, we hear that that God says that I've heard the cry of my people. That God has heard their cry and that God has uh, you know uh, you know fulfilled and accomplished and planned and orchestrated and and set up events that are to come into motion that after over 400 years of bondage and enslavement, now his people would be free. And so 600,000 people pack up and head out and begin a wandering and to begin to be shepherded, shepherded. And that's where when you come through Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, the whole sacrificial system that we talked about two weeks ago begins to take shape, but it begins kind of in this event. Not surprising, then, the New Testament writers pick up on this. That it's a dominant theme, not just inside of the Old Testament, referring to these events. A number of Psalms that would talk about, you know, that he created a way and, you know, the waves crashed over, you know, the horse and rider, you know, hurled into the sea. and, And those kind of verses, it even gets picked up inside of the New Testament as a dominant picture for the people of God about God's care, God's love. God's demonstration of power, God's deliverance, and his liberation of his people. There are a few of the, the images that were on, you know, that initial slide and, and that list that kind of come out through this. And there's the idea of substitution that, uh, you know, there was a, a lamb that was slain and, and the blood that was put on the doorposts. That there was something to be symbolic inside of that moment, that that was an act of worship, but it was also an act of being reminded that for what they could not do for themselves, God stepped in and did. And it wasn't so much the blood of the Lamb that offered any power or any, uh, you know, dynamic element to what was taking place, but it signified that God was stepping in to do what they could not do. It doesn't take a whole lot of memory, then, to think of the way that the New Testament picks this up, that we also have been covered by the blood of Jesus. That when we found ourselves in bondage and enslavement, that he was the one that did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And it's as if the blood of Jesus covers the door frame of your life and my life. That you cannot possibly, you know, look upon your life without seeing the mark and the death of Jesus as being the primary shaper of the identity of who you are as a believer in him. So the idea of, of substitution is here, the, the idea of, of liberation, you, you know, that God is a God who sets free, you know, that Jesus talks about, you know, setting free the captive, uh, that there is liberation that takes place. There is identification that once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and, and that takes place literally inside of this moment as they begin to walk, and that together God shapes them and molds them, and how they're to or, order their daily lives and what the, temp- you know, the, the tabernacle is supposed to look like that eventually becomes the temple, how they, you know, govern their moral life, how they relate to one another, how they settle disputes to become and to create a people for himself that takes place over the next 40 years. 1 Corinthians chapter 5 picks up on this aspect and says, For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. And for everyone reading that, even in, inside of uh, A non-Jewish audience, perhaps, in Corinth would understand and would know because of the background of what happens in Passover and the significance of Passover and the feast and and the lamb and the meal and what it signifies and what it points towards. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. And again, we reminded ourselves a couple weeks ago, once and for all, full and effective to make a difference inside of our lives. On that final evening with the disciples as they share the Passover meal, there is no coincidence that the death of Jesus takes place during the celebration of Passover. It's a significant thing, and it's not just a coincidence that on the night where they are eating the Passover, Jesus did not gather his disciples to remind them about Passover. He gathered them to instruct them that he is the Passover. And that as big as that event was, more than a thousand years before, what was going to take place inside of the next 24 hours was going to shape the course of human history to be the fulfillment of what God began to do in the book of Exodus that would now completely and fully do in Jesus. So there's several parallels, and again, if you've spent time in church, you know some of these things to be the case, but I just want to remind you uh, some of the significant, you know, if there are four or five major bullet points about the Passover, the connection is easy and you won't need too much explanation from me. Uh, but let's summarize kind of the Passover together and, and how that finds its fulfillment in, in, even inside of the language of the New Testament about what Jesus came to do. The first thing is that in the Passover, and we've already referenced this, that God heard the cry of his people. That God hears your cry and he sees your deepest need. Maybe not your most pressing need, not your most apparent need, not the the need that's on the tip of your tongue, but God sees uh, the deepest need inside of your heart and he hears your cry. Now that's significant, not just for people who are in bondage, but for people who walk through life and there are a variety of different things that are always going on. Now, maybe you're somebody who has deep cries inside of your heart. Maybe you're somebody that keeps things close to the vest and, you know, you don't find yourself deeply troubled or stirred but for all of us as we walk through life there are things that burden you there are things that weigh us down there are things that seek to entrap trap us and you need to know and be reminded and again almost as though the focus comes in better one or better two to be reminded this time of year that what the cross displays for us more than anything else is that God sees you and that God hears you God sees you and he hears you Three years of ministry, he laughed and he wept and he traveled and he taught and he healed and he corrected, he rebuked, and he lived life. He didn't travel very far. He didn't write any books, but he spent time with people. And the one thing I think that you would say that if you were in the presence of Jesus to know that you felt seen and you felt like he heard you, that even he heard the things inside of your life that you couldn't even vocalize, but there was something about being in his presence that even people who were far from God wanted to be around him because I think they felt seen and felt heard. It's become language inside of our culture and and at times I think it's overused or misused, but I think it's true that there is so much made today about uh, I feel seen or I feel heard. And I wonder if there's something inside of us that, As you walk through life and there's a tendency to feel like we're on our own or we're doing our own thing or that there are things that nobody else seems to know, there's something powerful when you feel like somebody sees you and they see what you're going through and they notice that you're struggling. Or when somebody hears something, even that you didn't verbalize, but even just something in the tone of your voice, it means something. It means something when you notice people, when you see people. And I think it's an extension of what God wants to do in and through our lives is not only you find yourself seen and heard, but you become somebody who sees and hears inside of your life. Second, in the cross, Jesus sets us free from that which constrains and binds us. You know the picture inside of Exodus, enslavement, making bricks inside of the heat, the oppression of Pharaoh and of Pharaoh's men, the boiling point that especially for Moses earlier in his life seems to take place, that there is something building even if it's just a demoralizing and a dissatisfaction about the current context of their, their life and God wants to set his people free. A key component of salvation is not just what we get or receive in Christ, but even what he's released us from or led us out of. Salvation is not just about the addition inside of your life, that there is joy, that there is peace, that there is hope, that there is Jesus walking with me, but salvation is also what has been subtracted from your life and what you have been freed from, released from, led out of that God has done inside of your life. And sometimes we don't emphasize that enough because we talk about all the, you know, the the perks and what's added. But maybe the significant thing inside of your salvation and relationship with Jesus is what he has taken you out of or away from or released inside of your life. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me. He has anointed me to proclaim Good news to the poor, to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and to set the oppressed free. A song that we sang last week, N. Kennedy, said, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. But thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon was filled with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free, I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? In 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us that God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I think we need to think about that more often, of, what he has brought me out of and not just what he's brought me towards because a lot of times what took place to subtract from your life was even more significant to lay the foundation of your Christian life than what necessarily was simply added to you. So he he sees sees us, he hears us, he sets us free. Uh, The third is the idea of blood. It's the idea that the blood of the doorpost, just like blood on the doorpost, his, his blood marks us as him, his. His blood becomes an identification point that marks us as his. Bill mentioned Isaiah 53 last week that, uh, that he was wounded for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds we are healed. We, we identify with him through his blood. The presence of blood meant you were safe. No blood not safe, in danger. The presence of blood meant that there was life and a future for the people of God. No blood meant that there was death and destruction on that evening. The presence of blood meant that there was a new identity for the people of God, a new purpose and a new direction. No blood meant bondage in Egypt and continuing inside of what was already taking place. It can't can't be understated, the importance of the blood of Jesus, that it creates for us a new identity that we are marked, that we are known as his. All right, quickly, so, you know, moving through a couple more things. Salvation, what what we read inside of Exodus, that the salvation is something that only God can do, but it does require action on the part of those who received it. Go and ask your neighbors for gold gold and silver. Prepare the lamb. Prepare the meal. Put your coat on. Put your staff in your hand. Put your sandals on your feet. Be ready to go so that when I do what only I can do, you are ready to do what you have been called to do. Jesus says, no one takes my life from me, but I freely and willingly lay it down. Make no mistake about it your salvation is rooted in only what God could do what not not what you could do but it demands a response and it demands action that we find ourselves ready with shoes on our feet and with a staff in our hand and you know with we're not clinging hard to the things that we're leaving behind in Egypt but we're ready to go for what he has called us to The final thing I think I realize in, inside of the Exodus is that God always has a desire for his people and a plan for his people. That God always has a desire for us and a plan for us. And that's comforting news because sometimes when you feel like you are drifting, God has a plan. Sometimes when it feels like you are stuck, God has a plan. But not only that, that God has a desire to take me and to make me something more than what I currently am. And that he's always working on me and he's always chiseling away the rough edges and he's got a plan and a desire and he has promised to work that out inside of my life. Honestly, I don't always understand his timing. And I think if I were 430 years in Egypt, I would wonder why didn't God intervene at year number 200 or 300? Why did it have to go this long? Why did it take this amount of time? And and we have the luxury. We stand 3,000 years later and we look back and say, well, certainly when you read through, God had a plan and it was, you know, there was something that took place inside the people of God in Egypt that then they understood and appreciated the the salvation of God. But it's easy to say when you weren't living it in year number 155 of bondage. I don't always understand God's timing, but I know that he has never left without a plan and a desire for me that's even greater than the desire I have for myself. So I'm going to invite Eddie to come back, and we're going to, you know, you know, kind of break this down a little bit, because there's a couple of things in here I want us to not miss, or not, you know, you know talk about a little bit further. But this idea of, again, you know, this substitution that he did for us, what we could not do for ourselves, that there's the liberation of his setting free, uh, his redemption inside of our life, and that we identify with him, you know, kind of are those dominant images. So, um, Eddie, I think it was in seminary when I first, uh, you know, came across that there's a number of people that have written about the fact that, um, you know, what takes place from bondage to, you know, uh, you know the Passover and the Red Sea experience and, and the wandering inside the wilderness, that then almost creates a little bit of imagery and a paradigm almost of like the Christian life. Have you, you seen that? And how do you think that those are not just historical events, but they almost illustrate what God wants to do inside of our lives.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I see it within my own story, you know. Um, it's, it's more than just this theoretical idea, but in my own story from kind of lost, kind of wandering around, um, kind of stuck in who I was as a person before Christ. And then even after I came to know Christ, there was this period of time which, I, you know, I... Some could even say that I'm still in, because if talk about standing down the rough edges, you know, for many of those who who do know me, I, I have a lot of rough edges, and, and those who don't know me, I have a lot of rough edges. So <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think God is is still working down, um, working on those edges now, and so like even transitioning into that promised land, I, you know, when the Egyptian or not the Egyptians, the Israelites spent those 40 years in in wandering and, and unsure. You know, I, I think we spent a lot of time there just, and that's our Christian walk moving forward. So that imagery kind of, I think it translates really well to, uh, to who we are today and, you know, that, that step process to becoming whole.
0: Yeah, and I think it might have been more useful, you know, if that's a good word, or more relevant maybe in, in a time where people were more biblically literate, you know, to understand yeah. that. But yeah. one of the things I had heard is, you know, if you're familiar with like the Romans Road or the bridge analogy, like some of the things we use to explain the gospel, if you were somebody who knew your Old Testament, what better way to explain the gospel that we were once in bondage, Right. he set us free, he led us out, uh, he taught us how to live, and he created for us a a land and a nation and an identity as the people of God. Like That kind of imagery of Old Testament history, really, there's a consistency to who God is, and and we see the same thing kind of, you know, inside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, no question,
1: yeah. And I think, um, you know, you're talking about a time when you know, we're more I think there's some advantage to going back to that and really teaching that idea of, you know, bondage to wandering to promised land in the way that we we present the gospel now, um, before Christ during and when we go home again, you know? Yeah.
0: So what does Christ set us free from? And and I know that I mean the list could be endless. (laughs) But I don't know if there's kind of like some categories or because usually when we talk about salvation we do talk about it in the in the positive ways and we probably should, you know, that you know, what we gain or, you know, our identity or what shifts, but like an important part of salvation is what he's also kind of freed us from or let us out of. So are there any like categories or thinking through what you see inside of like hearing other people's stories? Like how do you explain what does Jesus set us free from?
1: Well, you know, I've heard a a number of people uh, over the years talk about some kind of addiction, that they were just, they were stuck in this addiction uh, and couldn't get out of it. And then one day, you know, they pray to, to God, and they, they accept Jesus, and, and then there is no more addiction. Um, you know, for me, it's more of an internal emotional thing that I've been carrying around. Um, and I, I know that that translates to a number of people whose story is, you know, I like to keep a lot of things real tight to the to the vest, as you were saying, and I keep it a lot inside. And, and so it's an emotional thing for me, um, and, I, and I think that translates to a lot of people. So it, it's like a broad category, because I, I guess being set free, it could be literally anything um, that's holding you down from having the life that God had a plan for you to have. Um, and I think about that life journey, you know, we can be heading down that right path and then we kind of veer off and then God swings us back around once we get free from that thing. And um, so I guess the long, the short answer to the long question is I have no idea.
0: It, it could be anything, <laughs> um, you know. Glad to have you up here with us. I See try, you know. You know
1: so that, I'm here for fun.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, I do think that's important to think through and, you know, in, in thinking about this, kind of the analogy for me was similar when we talked about Paul, you know, yeah. um, was it last summer or two summers ago? Um, and we said that you read Paul's conversion story, right? but most of us didn't have that blinding light, knocked off the horse, blind for three days, type of, right. you know, instant change. I think the same thing is true here that you, you would tend to think, all right, when I hear the story of the person was, you know, deep in addiction and then met Jesus in, in rehab and, and God freed them and there's kind of this amazing story or, you know, yeah. beyond addiction, you know, inside of other things, sometimes the tendency to think is if I don't have that kind of story, then, you know, yeah. if I grew up in the church all of my life, then what did Jesus really free me from or rescue me from or liberate right. me from? I think the answer comes back to sometimes it's just ourselves, right? right. Like, Um, you know doing you know I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it and and God I'll come to church and maybe I'll even give or attend a bible study but but there's a limit to what you can ask of me and sometimes
1: yeah and it's not always that flashy right yeah we don't have the flashy story I don't know that I had a flashy story I just who I was before I you know gave my life and who I was after was just a different person you know And, and I think that
0: that translates a little bit there too. So one other thing, thing part of that, and, and I don't know if you know how often you, you know you read or you're saturated with these things, but if if I we were to just you know lay out the phrase liberation theology, sometimes you know for those of us you know who have been through seminary and we've read a lot about that, it could sometimes be a um, not very popular thing amongst you know conservative Bible-believing Christians because liberation theology tends to focus sometimes on people who want to change. Social structures, and sometimes it seems to be separated from the personal work of Christ. Right. So, um, liberation theology sometimes focuses on, you know, you know, releasing different aspects of like the ills of society, mm-hmm. and sometimes the critique is, did you take Jesus into that, or is it right. just trying to make yeah. life better? Right. Yet at the same time, like I think sometimes that gives it a bad name, and we don't talk about. Uh, you know, Jesus as our liberator, Jesus as the one who like frees from bondage and maybe because it's been misused in other places, right. we tend to not talk about it, but it's it's really an important metaphor.
1: Well, I think it's a great, um, and the more I thought about it this week, you know, we don't spend enough time, I don't think, talking about the things that held us down that we've been set free from and, and the, the idea of liberation theology. And I know that you can translate that into the broader social aspect of things, but you know i think the part we're missing is that we were once held down by sin and destruction and then we were set free from it and and the work that was done on the cross is the only way to get there and um i think we need a little bit more of that sometimes to understand like we were and are a broken people that need a redeemer need to be liberated to have that red sea experience to have the jordan river experience to travel into the promised land um you know, and it's only a work that God can do. If you think about those two stories by themselves, the only way they got across the river was the work of God, you know, the work of Jesus Christ. And, and we need more of that to talk about yeah. that, to work through that, to even get some of those emotions out there so that we can understand
0: more. Any specific examples for you, either past or present, doesn't have to be your big, deepest, darkest thing, but like, <laughs> what has Jesus kind of set you free or is he setting you free from?
1: Um, well now's the time to take out your notepads um, if you wanna have a conversation later. Um, the biggest thing that, that came to my mind, and there's a, a number of times throughout my life that um, I feel like I had reached out and one was the point of salvation and God would you know, would shave away some of that and took a long time and still working through some of that. Um, a lot of times when I was in college there was a couple things, but the biggest thing that, that I could think of um, a number of years ago you know I was just dealing with a lot of guilt, a lot of um frustration, a lot of anger, a lot of pain, and I just held it in i just um for a good eight years or so, I just kind of held that that pain inside uh until one day I just couldn't anymore and uh I was on in a truck, driving uh a show somewhere probably, and uh I just cried out to God and I lost it just all kind of came flowing out. I couldn't hold it anymore. Uh, and that's not to say that I still don't. Some of the remnant of that doesn't kind of still creep up, but uh, it was just this change in me that just I let it go, and it was it was off my chest, it was off my heart. Um, I didn't have to hold on to it anymore, and uh, yeah, that's that's the biggest within my own life that
0: I I could yeah. think of. I I think for me, if I were to put like a category to it or like a major heading, it's been worry. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, as a teenager before coming to know Christ, I was worried about, you know, how to be successful, how to make people like me, how to like, yeah. you know, I was searching for something that Jesus then came in and became like the center of and became the thing that fulfilled that. But then ever since, there are always new opportunities for worry. You, right. know, like there's, you can worry about, you know, like, you know, is, is she the right one? And then you get married and you're like... I'm worried about, you know, I don't want to mess this thing up. And then, then you have a couple of kids, and you worry about messing them up. And, um, you know, and then you can worry about, you know, finances or ministry yeah. or church stuff. or And, um, you know, I find that there's always opportunities. and I don't know if it's a control thing for me, if mm-hmm. it's a perfectionistic thing for me, or if it's, you know, just a sometimes being overwhelmed. Um, I've had, had to surrender that. And I've had, you know, a couple of periods of time where I haven't slept very well. and. Yeah. It was almost, you know, I didn't feel like I was anxious at the time, but when I really began to, like, think about it and work through it, like, you know, I just had to, like, let that go. And and it's not as simple, you know, you can read a verse that just says, don't worry about tomorrow, tomorrow will take care of, and you know that, but then to live in it, you know, I feel like Jesus had to kind of, like, you know, rescue me, release me, you know, from Uh, some of those things. And it's an ongoing work. I don't know that I can, I think I can proclaim victory, but not necessarily... Proclaim completion yeah. you know, of that, that yeah. it
1: continues on. Absolutely. And I, you know, a number of people, I mean, I'd
0: love to hear your story on that because I, you know, I'm still on to that one. So, yeah. Well, thanks. I, I oh, appreciate, yeah, you pleasure. know, just taking some time to, to work through some yeah. of this. I think the picture of the Exodus becomes, you know, a primary one. I would almost say similar to two weeks ago when we talked about sacrifice. Those two threads run through your Old Testament and pave the way for uh, how the New Testament writers describe what Jesus came to do. Um, that from, you know, through the earliest pages of scripture, God was looking for a way to make a relationship with his people a possibility. Um, to release them from that which bound them. To give them a new identity and a purpose. That their lives would be marked by blood on the doorposts. Um, by identification with who God is and, and the work that he would do inside of, his, inside of their lives to free them. Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. We have life in him. We have rescue and redemption in him. We have new life in him. Let's pray together. Let me just ask you as we close. uh, First of all, the story of the Exodus begins when it says that God saw them and he heard their cry. We know that God sees and hears. We know that God is aware. But sometimes we're tempted inside of our day-by-day circumstances to wonder what God is doing, what his timing is. And so let me just invite you, if there's a place that you want um, and need to cry out before your God this morning, maybe it's on behalf of a situation that's taking place on the other side of the world or in somebody else's life, or maybe it's inside of your own heart, your own emotions, your own finances. To know today that God hears your cry and that God sees you. Second question, let me ask you if you, if it would be readily apparent to anybody who passed by that they would see the blood on the doorpost and know that those people belong to Yahweh. Would people know when they pass by your life, your language, your family? Is the blood on the doorpost of your life so evident that it would be a testimony to whose you are and to who you belong to? And maybe a third question is, is there anything today that you would pray that God would rescue you from that would release and bring liberation inside of your heart and your life. Maybe it's something ongoing, maybe it's something small, or maybe it's something that you've never thought about before and it seems huge. But know as we approach the cross that he is a God who sees you and hears you. He wants to identify himself with you, that that his blood becomes the dominant characteristic of of your life. And he wants to bring rescue and relief and new life to the dead places inside of us today. And so God, we thank you for your initiative that when we were apart for you, Jesus died for us. We thank you for the imagery that once the people who were enslaved were let out. were rescued, were redeemed. That once they were not a people, but then they became the people of God. And Lord, today we invite you to, to see and to hear and to mark the doorposts and the, the frames of our life. And we invite you to continue to bring that kind of release and liberation to the, the bound and the broken and the desperate places within us today. Father, would you make us instruments even of your peace, of of your rescue, Lord, that we would even be that and engage inside the lives of others. Lord, we thank you and praise you today for all that you have done for us. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.